If you'll take your Bible tonight and open it, please, to the book of Esther. You say, John, we were in the book of Esther on Sunday morning. Had you forgotten that? No, I hadn't forgotten it. I was hoping you had forgotten it, because if you had forgotten it, I could preach the same sermon again. But the good news is, this is not the same sermon. It's a completely different sermon, but we are in the same book, the book of Esther. And I want us to emphasize tonight a different aspect of that book than we talked about on Sunday morning. Now, maybe the best way to start this is to give what I would consider to be a pretty good outline of the book of Esther. I'm going to break it down into four parts, and tonight we're going to develop all four of these. First of all, as the book begins, we see a time of fretting, a time of fretting. The people, the Jewish people were afraid, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. And then as a result of their fretting, there was a time of fasting where they sought the Lord and they prayed. And then after that, there was a time of favor. God heard their prayer, God answered their prayer, and God moved on their behalf. And so uh, there was a tremendous favor, really, that God did for the Jewish people living there in Persia. And then at the end of the book, we see a time of feasting. So think about what I've said. We go from a time of fretting to a time of fasting to a time of favor to a time of feasting. Now, you may be thinking tonight, well, I'm glad I'm here listening to this message or I'm glad I'm watching at home because you may be thinking tonight that you yourself are in a time of fretting and you're trying to figure out what to do during your troubling situation. Well, I'm telling you tonight, if you will follow the example that Esther lays out for us, not only Esther, but the Jewish people in this book, God will move you from that time of fretting to a time of feasting one way or the other before he is done with your situation. So maybe we could just kind of, to begin with tonight, think about those four words and see what the Scripture says about that. First of all, a time of fretting. Now, go back to chapter number 3 in Esther. As we saw, we did see on Sunday morning that the king, King Ahasuerus, had sent out a decree, an order, for all the Jews living in Persia to be killed. Well, you can imagine... Once that word got out, how the Jewish people would have felt. Now, in chapter number 3, look with me beginning in verse number 13. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, to plunder their possessions. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province, being published for all people, that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, or in Susa, the citadel, the capital city. So the king and Haman sat down to drink. Now, as we saw on Sunday, Haman was the right-hand man of the king. He was a high-ranking official. And after they had sent this order out to kill all the Jews, they weren't too worried about it. They sat down to have a drink. But the city of Shushan was perplexed. Some translations say confused or bewildered. In other words, the people living in the area, when they heard, I'm talking about even the people who weren't Jews, they heard this. We're supposed to kill the Jewish people. Some of these people are our friends and our neighbors, and now the king is telling us to kill them. So they were very perplexed and confused and and bewildered at why this was happening. Well, if the non-Jews felt that way, you can imagine how the Jewish people felt. Talk about perplexed, confused, bewildered, afraid. They thought, good night. What in the world is this all about? And that was the time of fretting. Now, 
The next part of the little outline, there was a time of fasting. And I'm not going to spend much time on this because we did talk about it on Sunday. But go to chapter number 4. And beginning in verse 13, we find a conversation that's taking place between Esther, who is now the queen of Persia, and her older cousin Mordecai, both of them now Jewish, of course. And Mordecai had raised Esther from childhood. Her parents had died when she was young. Esther's in the palace. Mordecai's down in the courtyard. He can't go into the palace. He's not an official of any kind at this time. But there was a person going back and forth, conveying messages to each other. Mordecai says to this person, tell Queen Esther about this edict, this decree that the king has made that all the Jews are going to be killed. And so Esther finds out about it. And she thinks, man, this is awful. And and Mordecai had said to her, you need to go before the king and beg him to change his mind. Beg him to do something to save the life of the Jews. Well, Esther sent word back down to Mordecai saying, listen, this is horrible, but I can't do that. I can't go into the presence of the king. Back in that day, you couldn't go into the presence of the king unless the king raised his golden scepter his staff. It was a symbol of his authority and power. And if if he raised that golden scepter, looked you in the eye, you could come into his presence. Kind of like the Queen of England today. Did you know if you're in in, uh, England and you have an opportunity to be in the presence of the Queen, even if you're standing next to the Queen, here you are and here the Queen is, and she's drinking punch and eating cake, and you're drinking punch and eating cake, you can't turn to the Queen and say, Queen, uh, Your Majesty, Your your Royal Highness, how are you doing? You can't say, you can't instigate a conversation with the Queen unless the Queen speaks to you first. In fact, you can never instigate a conversation with the Queen. You're not allowed to talk to the Queen unless the Queen talks to you first. So you might be eating punch and drinking, uh, eating punch, drinking punch and eating cake for an hour and a half with her next to you. You can't say anything to her unless she says something to you first and starts the conversation. So this is kind of like a, a, a custom of royalty. Well, in Persia, it was the same way. Unless the king looked you in the eye, raised his royal scepter, that staff, you couldn't come into his presence. And that's what Esther said to this person who was going back and forth. Tell Mordecai, I can't do that. If I do that, the law is I would be killed. And one of the things about the law of the Persians was it could never be changed. Once a law was in, the law was in. It was in effect. Nobody could ever change it. And so she sent word back to Mordecai. Mordecai sent word back to Esther saying, Esther, I know this is a dangerous situation, but God has placed you as queen for such a time as this so that you can speak to the king and so that you can intervene for your people. We read this in chapter 4, verse 13. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. Remember, she was a Jew too, so she would have been killed. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. In other words, he's saying God's going to take care of his people, whether it's through you or whether it's through somebody else. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time is this. That phrase, that little prepositional phrase, is the key phrase of the whole book of Esther. For such a time as this, this is your your appointed time. This is your destiny, Esther. 
to help the Jews. In verse 15, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan, in Susa, in the capital city, and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And so the queen says, what we need is a three-day fast. You talk about fretting. They were all fretting. Their lives had been threatened. But Esther said, we're going to fast. We're going to pray. We're going to seek the face of God for three days. And at the end of that time, we're going to pray that somehow, some way, God will open a door, that God will make a way for me to go into the king's presence. Because if I can get into the king's presence, I will appeal for my people. And so this was the time of fasting. Do you see the progression now? A time of fretting, a time of fasting, and then a time of favor. Look in chapter number 5, beginning in verse 1. After the fast had ended, notice what happened. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found, here's our word, favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, what do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. And so now, miraculously, supernaturally, the queen has caught the eye of the king. They've made eye contact. He's in the house where the king lives. She's in another part of the, of the, of the headquarters there, but not in the same building. He lifts up the golden scepter. That's his way of saying, you may come into my presence. She goes into his presence. And then from this moment on, uh, they decide to have another time where they're going to have a little banquet and for Mordecai, um, for uh, Haman and for the king and for Esther. And all this is described here. But this, what is happening here, is the beginning of the favor that God is extending to the Jewish people. Eventually, Esther, of course, says to the king, he, she describes this plot that has been taken for them to be destroyed. And she says to the king, is there any way that you can revoke this law? Is there any way you can change this? Basically, that's what she wanted him to do. But she knew he couldn't change the law. But she's just saying, can you make a new law that would overrule that law? And so the king said, absolutely, I will. And so the king made a law and sent it out into all 127 provinces of his Persian kingdom that the Jews now, on the 13th day of the month of Adar, have his full permission, his full blessing, not only to defend themselves, but to kill those who are trying to kill them. Now think about that. The king is giving Jewish people not only permission, but instructions to kill his own Persian people if those Persians are following his initial decree and trying to kill the Jews. So it's, it's very uh, bizarre, really. It's unthinkable that a king would give that kind of an order. We read about it chapter 8 and in verse number 11. It says, By these letters the king permitted the Jews who were in every city 
to gather together and protect their lives, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, to plunder and to plunder their possessions. On one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Now think about what the king has done. His first edict said, hey, all the Persians, go kill the Jews on the 13th day of Adar. Esther goes into his presence, pleads for mercy. He puts a new law in and now says to the Jews, you can kill those who are trying to kill you. Down in verse 16, when the Jews heard about this, the Scripture says, the Jews had light and gladness, joy, and honor. And so when they got the word, the burden lifted. The fretting was gone, and they knew that there was a way for them to survive and for their lives to go on. Now, in chapter number 9, and I, I could read the whole chapter. I'm not going to do that. But let's look at some key verses. Look, about in verse, look first in verse number 1 of chapter 9. Now, in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred. You should underline that phrase, the opposite occurred, in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. Verse 5, thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter, with destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. And so God now has turned the tables. God not only has protected his people, but God has punished those, and many have lost their lives, who had sought to do them harm. Verse 6, and in Shushan, or Susa, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And then beginning in verse uh, 7, you read about the 10 sons of Haman. Haman was the one who had plotted to destroy the Jews. He is the one that was the one who had planned to have Mordecai hanged on the gallows. Well, by the time the story's over, the gallows that he had built for Mordecai to be hanged on were the gallows where he experienced his own execution, and now his ten sons have been killed. Verse 11, on that day, the number of those who were killed in Shushan, the citadel, was brought to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in the capital city of Shushan and the ten sons of Haman. What, they ha what have they done to the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. Or what is your further request? It shall be done. Then Esther said, if it pleases the king, let it be granted to the king, to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow according to today's decree. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. And the decree was issued in Shushan. And they hanged Haman's ten sons. And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together again on the 14th day of the month of Adar. This is the second day. And killed 300 men at Shushan. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives, had rest from their enemies, and killed 75,000 of their enemies, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. And so, remember, in the Persian Empire, there were 127 provinces. Just say there were 127 different cities. 
One of them was Shushan, or Susa, the capital city. On the 13th day, the Jews there defended themselves and killed about 500 Persians. Esther goes to the king and said, could we have one more day in Shushan, the Jews living in this city, to kill those who are trying to kill us? And the king extended it one more day. Well, the Jews who were living in these other 126 provinces outside the capital city, they only killed their enemies on that first day, on the 13th of the month of Adar. They killed 75,000, so they killed a great number of them. But what I'm trying to demonstrate here is we've gone from a time of fretting to a time of fasting and now a time of favor. God has heard and answered Esther's prayer. The king has invited her into his presence, and now God has protected his people. He has totally turned the tables. Have you noticed in your life that there, I'm sure you have, there have been times when the devil had planned something bad against you, but by the time God got finished with it, just like it says here, the opposite happened. God had turned the tables. God had taken what the enemy meant for evil and turned it around, and God had brought good out of it. The song we just sang, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. The weapon was formed, but it didn't prosper. God turned the tables. Well, that's what he did for the Jewish people. It was a time of great favor. Now, after their deliverance, there was a time of feasting. And this is the fourth point in our outline. There was a time of feasting. Now, in chapter 9, look in verse number 17. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th of the month of Adar, they rested and made it a day, here's our word, of feasting and gladness. And so those who were living in these 126 provinces, cities, outside the capital city, on the 14th day of Adar, after this great deliverance, they said, we've got to celebrate this, we've got to have a feast, we've got to have a party, and we've got to celebrate what God has done. Verse 18. But the Jews who were at Shushan assembled together on the 13th day as well as on the 14th. And on the 15th day of the month, they rested and made it a day, here it is again, of feasting and gladness. And so I want to just make this point very clear because it's going to be necessary in a moment. Those living outside the capital city on the 13th day of the month, they defended themselves and destroyed their enemies. And on the 14th day, they celebrated. Those living inside the capital city took the 13th and the 14th day to defend themselves and to destroy their enemies. And on the 15th day, they had a feast. They had a celebration. So if you step back and look at the Jews in this whole Persian kingdom, the, the ones outside the capital city and the ones inside the capital city. Looking at it from an outsider now, there were two days of feasting. The 14th day of the month of Adar and the 15th day of the month of Adar. There were two different days when the Jews celebrated what God had done. Verse 19, therefore the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled towns celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the days in which the Jews had rest from their enemies." 
And uh, as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them, from mourning to a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun as Mordecai had written to them. Because Haman and the sons of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and had cast the purr. If you were here on Sunday, I explained the purr was like rolling the, dot, the dice. It's like the lot. And Haman had ro- cast the purr. He had cast the lots. He had rolled the dice to see on which day the Jews could be destroyed, the 13th day of the month of Adar. But now God's turned the tables. And now on the day the Jews were to be destroyed, the Jews were delivered. Verse 25, but when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. This is why the scripture says, don't ever roll a stone, don't ever roll a stone for somebody else to stumble over. That stone will roll back on you. Don't ever dig a hole for somebody else to fall into, or you yourself will fall into it. Verse 26, so they call these days Purim. Now, the pronunciation of that, remember, we're speaking English. This is a Jewish word. People say, well, I want to pronounce it the right way. Well, we don't pronounce anything the right way. I mean, we don't say Jacob, we say Jacob, right? So, Don't ever feel like you have to say things like exactly the Hebrews would have said it because you're not going to do that throughout the Bible. People pronounce this in English, Purim. I think that would be the most common, like P-O-O-R, Purim, Purim. Some would say Purim, like a cat purrs, Purim. That's probably the technically the correct way to say it. Some would say Purim, and that's fine for us, uh, those of us who speak English. So however you want to say this, but they call these days Purim, 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 however you want to pronounce it, after the name Pur. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter and what had happened to them. So the point I'm trying to make tonight, and I hope I'm making it, is that the, the time of fretting turns into a time of fasting. The time of fasting turns into a time of favor. God delivers his people. But after the time of favor, there's a time of feasting, and there is a time of celebration. And this Jewish holiday began that still exists today. Now, it's interesting. If you go home tonight and get on your computer and pull up your friend, Mr. Google, and ask him, when is the Feast of Purim or Purim in Israel this year? Here's when it is. It is today, March the 16th. And it is tomorrow, March the 17th. You say, well, it should have been the 14th and the 15th. Why isn't it? Here it says the 14th. Remember, the Jewish people went by a different calendar than we go by today. We go by the Gregorian calendar, which is dominated by the sun. We are determined more by the sun. They went by a lunar calendar. And so these calendars all have to be adjusted. Uh, In fact, if you really trace all the calendars back, it can get quite confusing. Jesus... Once you factor in all the different days uh, of that calendar and our calendar, Jesus was born somewhere between 6 B.C. and 4 B.C. Now, how much sense does that make, that Jesus was born six years before Christ? But I'm just saying when you adjust the calendars, that's what it comes out to. And so for the Jews, the month of Adar, we don't have the month of Adar on our calendar. That's not an international month. We are in the month of March. Sometimes this might be celebrated in February, but this year it is celebrated on the 16th 
and the 17th. And when I looked at that and thought about that, and I thought, you know, I know I just spoke on this on Sunday, but I didn't do as much on the Feast of Purim on Sunday as I was trying to say on Sunday, look, when we're up against it, when we're going through a crisis, sometimes God's going to deliver us like he did here, and sometimes God lets us go through the fire like he did with Simon Peter, got crucified upside down, and whether God delivers us or whether God lets us die, God's still God, and we ought to still trust him. Amen. That was Sunday's sermon. But tonight, what I'm trying to say is, listen, in all of our lives, yes, there should be times of seeking the Lord, but there should also be times of celebrating what He has done on our behalf. In our life, definitely, there should be seasons of prayer, but there should also be times when we have a party to celebrate the answer to those prayers. And so God designed it so that every year, the Jewish people in Israel and around the world could set aside two days where they would do what? Where they would celebrate, where they would remember what God had done, where they would enjoy being with their family and friends, where they would give presents to each other and even send money to the poor. It was a two-day celebration of the goodness of God. And the title of the message that I've given for this sermon tonight is, Why Christians Should Celebrate the Feast of Purim. Why should we celebrate it? I mean, we're not, most of us here are not Jewish. Our ancestors weren't in Persia and their lives were spared. Most of us are not Jewish. Some are, but not most of us. So why should we today as Christians celebrate a Jewish holiday? Well, lots of reasons. Remember this, everything that happened in the Old Testament was a preview of what was going to happen in the New Testament. Everything in the Old Testament, one way or the other, was a picture of Jesus. In the Old Testament, the people of God's lives were threatened. God stepped in after three days and rescued them. In the New Testament, all of our lives, in New Testament times, all of our lives were threatened because of sin. God stepped in. He sent Jesus to die on that cross. He shed his blood so that our sins could be forgiven. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose again. Three days it took for this prayer and fasting in Persia. Three days Jesus was in the belly of the earth before he came up out of that grave. And so it's all a picture of what it is for us. And so as Christians, we should celebrate this feast because we, albeit in a different way, we too have been delivered from things in life that have threatened us and that have held us in bondage. And I want to just mention these. I want to just, I've made a list of four things. Can't develop them much at all. But I want to just mention them. We have been delivered, first of all, from a life of lostness. We've been delivered from a life of lostness. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12, it describes what our lives were like before we met Christ. It, if, if you're here tonight or you're listening at home and you're not saved, Ephesians 2 and verse 12 describes what your life is like. It says that people who are unsaved are without hope and without God in this world. That's a horrible way to live. Before we were saved, we were lost. That word lost, you don't hear it preached much today. You don't hear people talking about what it means to be lost. Friend, you can't appreciate what it means to be saved until you understand what it means to be lost. To be lost means you have no direction. To mean be lost means you don't know where you're going. To be lost, you don't even know where you are. To be lost means your life is going around in circles. You're separated from God. You're without God in this world. 
and you're without hope in this world. You look to the future. You have nothing to look forward to. I'm telling you, it is a horrible thing to be lost. And many of us have been saved for so long, we've forgotten what it was like to be lost. Sometimes I'll hear somebody who got saved later in life, and they'll say to me, John, I just wish I would have gotten saved earlier in life. Wish I'd been saved as a child, saved as a teenager, so I could have walked with God all the days of my life. And I'll say to them, yes, that would have been better. There's certainly an upside to that. But look at the positive from your perspective. At least having been saved later in life, you have a full understanding of what it's like to be lost. And you can have an appreciation for your salvation, maybe even greater than somebody who was saved at an early age. And so we've been saved from a life of lostness. But not only that, we've been saved from a load of guilt. Guilt is a horrible thing. All of us have sinned, the Scripture says, and fallen short of the glory of God. And when we sin, we feel guilty about it, and we feel badly about it, and we should. And sometimes the devil will come along and remind us of some sin we committed in our adolescence or a sin we committed in our young adult life or a sin we committed last week, pre-conversion sin, post-conversion sin. You know, sometimes you'll hear people make a distinction between pre-conversion and post-conversion as though the forgiveness of God is greater for pre-conversion sins than it is for post-conversion sins. Sometimes you hear somebody say, well, if you committed that sin before you got saved, then it's one thing. If you commit that sin after you got saved, it's It's almost like you're being punished for being a Christian. Friend, let me tell you something. The blood of Jesus forgives sins when we get saved and after we get saved. We we don't get less saved or, or less forgiven after we get saved than we were forgiven when we got saved to begin with. 1 John 1, 7, written to Christians... The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And yet the devil will put these thoughts in our mind, oh, I wish I never would have done that. Or if you listen to that school of thought, you say, well, I wish I'd done it before I got saved. Well, follow that out. What you're saying, you wish you weren't saved when you did? I mean, that doesn't even make sense. But what I'm saying in Christ, When we understand the blood of Jesus and his forgiveness of our sins, we understand that we have not only been forgiven, but we've been delivered from a load of guilt. Let me tell you something, friend. Any sin, pre-conversion, post-conversion, many years ago, a few days ago, any sin that you have committed, that you have genuinely confessed to God, repented of, sought his forgiveness, and by faith received his forgiveness has been washed away. It has been cast behind God's back. It has been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. It's in the depths of the sea. It's blotted off the books. It's out of the mind of God. And if God has forgotten it, you ought to be able to forget it too and not live with that guilt. You know, sometimes in life, somebody should have said amen right there. You just missed a fine chance to say it. You know, sometimes in life, You have to learn to beat the devil at his own game. And when the devil comes to you to make you feel guilty over some sin that you've already been forgiven of, you need to use that as an occasion to say, well, devil, I want to thank you for reminding me of of that sin which the blood of Jesus Christ has forgiven, cleansed, and washed away. And even if you don't want to address the devil in any personal way like that, and I probably wouldn't either, I would just respond by saying this, the blood of Jesus has forgiven that sin. You just remind, you, if he throws guilt on you, you throw the blood on him. If he throws accusation on you, you throw the word of God on him. That's what Jesus did. And if we can learn to say, you know what, I'm forgiven, I'm cleansed, and I don't have to carry that with me anymore. I'll say this, as Christians, we do not honor God by going around downtrodden, guilty, beating ourselves up 
for some sin that the blood of Jesus has washed away. We honor the blood. That doesn't mean we make light of sin. No, we don't make light of sin at all. That's why we struggle with guilt, because we're serious about sin. But we honor the blood by living as though what God's Word says is really true, that He has forgiven our sins and He's cast them into the depths of the sea. We've been delivered from a load of guilt. Tell you what else we've been delivered of, at least I hope so. We've been delivered from a basket full of fears. Fear is a horrible thing. Psalm 34 and verse 4, David said this, I sought the Lord and He heard me. Now watch this next part. And delivered me from all my fears. I was thinking about that today. I thought, you know, I, I, was thinking, I, was, I was finishing a funeral and I was going back home and I was just thinking about David and I was thinking about that verse. David said, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. And I thought, David had fears? That's really what I thought. I've, I never had thought about David being afraid. You talk about a man's man. David was, a, he's the greatest king in Israel's history. He was a warrior king. David was a fighting man. I mean, he, he was a man's man. And you don't think about David being afraid, and yet he said he was. He doesn't tell us all of his fears here. In other places, he indicates maybe what some of them were. But here he just says, you know what? I had fears in my life, and I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. You have to do with fear what you do with guilt. When the devil comes at you and puts a fearful thought in your mind about your health, your future, your finances, your kids, whatever, you have to be able to say, you know what? This fearful thought that used to paralyze me and trouble me and keep me up at night, this is something else that I can trust God with. And so I choose to trust God with what I would have heretofore been fearful of or be worried about. So, I mean, I think we're all going to struggle with fears on and off through life, but we have to know how to respond to that. We put it in God's hand like David did and let God deliver us from all of our fears. And then the last thing I would say is this. We have been delivered from circumstances that could have destroyed us. If we had time tonight, probably, maybe not everybody, but probably everybody in this room could give testimony to at least one time in your life when you went through something, and that something could have destroyed your life. It might could have killed you, and yet God delivered you, God rescued you, God healed you, and God brought you through that mess. Now, when I was preaching this sermon on Sunday, I was having to balance it off, as I should have, and say, sometimes God heals us, sometimes God doesn't. Sometimes we live, sometimes we die. Either way, if we're saved, we live, we go to heaven. But what I'm focusing on here is not so, I mean, we all know, I think we all understand that. But what I'm saying this, if we today, as Christians are going to think about setting aside two days every year to celebrate the Feast of Purim. We need a reason for doing that, right? The Jews look back on what happened in Persia, and that's all the reason they need. We, we can thank God for that too, because remember, Jesus came through the Jewish bloodline. And so their deliverance ultimately was our deliverance too. Their salvation resulted in our salvation. But as Christians... We have some other things that we can be thankful for. We can celebrate the fact, look at our list again, that we've been delivered from a life of lostness, from a load of guilt, from a basket full of fears, and from circumstances that could have destroyed us. Now, when I was reading this just online about the Feast of Purim and trying to understand when the Jews celebrated, 
If I understood it right, the Jews celebrate the Feast of Purim this year from sundown on March the 16th until sundown on March the 17th. From sundown tonight until sundown tomorrow. It's part of two days. Now, I want to give you a challenge. It's, it's sundown. It is, it, is, it is Sunday. In fact, if I just keep talking, the sun will be down, right? But if I'll stop, it's still going down. You get in your car, you can still see it going down now that time has changed. I want to give you a challenge between the time you walk out of here tonight until the sun goes down tomorrow night to celebrate from a Christian perspective the Feast of Purim because of all that God has delivered you from. Now, I've made a list tonight just to kind of get our minds going. You can make your own list. You can come up with your own illustrations and your own reasons why you should thank God. And you know, you may say, John, I'm in a situation right now where it's really dicey and dangerous, and I don't know how it's going to turn out. Well, you're in a time of fretting. You need to have a time of fasting. You need to seek God's favor and pray that He'll bring you to a time of feasting. But whether that happens on earth or in heaven, in your particular case, If you're saved tonight, you have reason to celebrate the Feast of Purim. What they celebrated as a deliverance from an evil man named Haman, we celebrate our deliverance from the evil one named Satan. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. One of the devotionals I read this morning said this, Remember this about the devil. He's already been defeated. And when Jesus came to live in your heart, you got the victory. If you can't think of any other reason to celebrate from sundown tonight till sundown tomorrow night, you ought to just say, God, I thank you that I'm saved. If he has healed your body, God, thank you that I'm healed. If he's healed somebody close to you, God, thank you she's healed. Thank you he's healed. If he's met a need, whatever. Hey, there are a thousand reasons we could celebrate. But I think you could have 24 very special hours with God if during this next day, you would set it aside and celebrate his deliverance in your case. Amen.